Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. The topics of aging and life extension are getting a lot of attention in the media. Sergey Young is right in the middle of the field working to treat aging as a curable disease. Sergey joins us today to talk about how humans will be able to extend life to 150 years and beyond. He is the author of the book, The Science and Technology of Growing Young, and he started the $100 million Longevity Vision Fund, which is working to accelerate longevity breakthroughs while making them accessible and affordable to everyone. In our discussion, we talk about what life extension will look like over the course of the 21st century, some of the remarkable healthcare innovations that seem like they are out of science fiction novels, and the societal implications of radical life extension. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Sergey, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Let's start with your background. So my hometown, 15,000 people, was closer to Japan across the Japanese Sea, far east of Russia and closer to China, then to regional capital, okay, to the state capital. So it was, you know, 200 miles across the sea to Japan and 300 miles to the capital of this region. And the yeah, first 17 years, I was enjoying the you know, nature, mountains as well. And I moved to Moscow, Perestroika. I started to work in McKinsey in global consulting, and it opened up the world for me. South Africa, New York, Toronto. Singapore, London, Amsterdam. Then I started to do investments. So for the last 20 years, I'm 51, by the way. So in the last 20 years, I've been doing mostly private equity investments. And then seven years ago, I got what I call longevity virus. And through my personal health crisis, I've developed an interest into the field of health and longevity. And it's actually changed my life. Last five years, when I set up Longevity Vision Fund, and I'm able to support scientists and entrepreneurs to, to make breakthroughs in the field of aging and cure so many diseases. That's fantastic. And I personally grew up kind of at the end of nowhere as well, northern Minnesota, so, so I can relate. We are dedicating season nine of 12 Geniuses to the topic of resilience. And I want to ask you what resilience means to you. What it means to me is when odds are against you, you're still continuing to try. And I know it sounds relatively simple, but when you face this in life, it's such a huge temptation to give up. But then your ability to find the energy and motivation for this just inside you, because all the world is against you, is my definition of resilience. And you know what? In some of the cases you fail, and the only thing you end up with are lessons for the future. In some of the cases, you know, I actually have done pretty well. And it's amazing what's consistency of the effort, the type of change that I can make. I want to ask you to give an example from your life of when you had to be resilient. And growing up in the former Soviet Union and probably the town where you did, there were probably plenty of examples of that. When I moved to Moscow, I was a very poor student because I'm from the poor family. And I remember it was perestroika just came, yes, USSR collapsed. And then my, my parents called me up when I was at the age of 18 and they said, well, Sergey, we were supporting you 
And now we lost our jobs, two of them. They were working on the same factory. There was one factory town. So now you are taking care of yourself, like in the age of 18, and you can probably support us as well, but like take care. And the only thing that I knew at this time was how to, you know, do climbing. So I was one of these guys who you see through the window of skyscrapers, cleaning these windows. I was living dormitory, they shared student accommodation, and I was pretty jobless. Like I was just doing this unqualified work. I was obviously a smart guy, but there's not a lot you can do in the age of 18, 19, where you're just finishing your second or third year in university. What I found there is like, if you, if you go to the newspaper at this time, you know, it was newspapers, there were no internet, you, you will find a job in like 12% of cases. But if you ask your friends and your friends of your friends and friends of your friends of the friends, and you consistent enough, it's going to be like 30 to 40% success. And I remember I just finished my very difficult job and it was literally midnight. I was on the bus to this dormitory and I've seen, there was someone opposite to me. It's a girl who I met like a couple of times and it was me. I'm like super tired. She was always super tired. She was finishing her job and going to dormitory. And then I thought, okay. I've done it today hundred times asking people if they have a job for me, but like, because this is written in the book and I just need to be consistent. I know the probability of success is, is going to be like zero. Okay. But let me follow that. And I ask, I literally like midnight conversation in a lonely bus going to dormitory, like in the end of the outskirts of Moscow. And I'm like, do you think you have something for me? And she said, oh, what? This is great. Like I'm working in a big private band and we have an interview round tomorrow for someone who can start a junior position working with the clients. Like, and she's like, just wear these suits and you know, I'll see you tomorrow at 9am. So here I am at midnight. I, at this time I didn't, I didn't ha even had a suit or the ties. So I was just knocking at the doors of my neighbors, borrowing the jackets and, and the tie. And yeah, I went through interview and it was start of my career. And then I moved to consulting. I, I was doing strategy for so many, you know, largest and most amazing companies and people in the world. So that's, that's the other story. And I, I do remember like at this time, I felt that just the failure probability is like 99.9%. How little did I know? That's fantastic. That's a great story. And we are going to talk about longevity through the rest of the conversation here. You kind of alluded to it in the beginning. You, you said that a handful of years ago, you got interested in this topic and you said that maybe it was a result of a health crisis. So can you talk about the circumstances of that? Yeah. And it's not dramatic, right? So, because, you know, some people would say that they were in the end of the world and this changed their life. So what has happened? Like 30 to 40% in the U.S., because we are a developed country, developed nation, and, and because of our food mix, are suffering from the high cholesterol level. And it's a major risk factor for heart disease, and heart disease uh, is the reason for that for one out of four people after the age of 50. So it's a huge risk factor. And I discovered, I haven't done my blood test for 10 years in a row. I know it's completely irresponsible. So this has happened back in 20, 2014. So I went to the doctor and I was like, when was the last time you've done a blood test? And I'm like, I'm not sure. Was it five, seven years ago? And they're like, oh my God. I mean, it's, it's pretty irresponsible. So he looked at the figure and he said, oh no, I have a bad news for you. You need to take statins. And statins is like, you know, drugs to decrease your cholesterol level. 
They're actually pretty efficient, very old drugs with a relatively safe profile. So, and I'm, I, I'm okay with that. So tell me, do I need to do it for one month, two months or three months? Okay, <laughs> you'll take it every day for the rest of your life. And it was literally a shock for me because I, at this time, I think it was 43, 44 at this time. I thought, oh my goodness, for another 40 years. No, I can tell you for now for, yeah, I'm spending this for another 149 years until the age of 20, sorry, 200. But at this time I was, oh my God, like what's wrong with my body? So I'm like, okay, I don't like it at all. So I asked doctor, like, what is the alternative? I was really just not the big fan of the idea to take statins till the rest of my life. So he's like, well, the alternative is pretty simple. You change your diet, you exercise every day, and you take omega-3 as a supplement. And I'm like, oh, okay, please continue. He's like, no, that's it. I couldn't believe my ears. I'm like, and that's it? Yeah, and he's like, everyone knows what to do, but no one does it. <laughs> oh, wow, let me give it a try for six months. And obviously I signed release, they take off responsibility from him. I mean, he was on duty. He was, his, he was, he was obliged to consult me you know, going to this direction in three months, just, well, I've done a lot of sport. Like I was swimming for an hour every morning. I changed my diet to decrease my red meat intake. I took omega-3. So my cholesterol level was down 25%. And I thought, oh my God, I, I had this paradigm that if you are sick, you need to take a medicine, right? Developed by big pharma or to do some medical intervention. Apparently my body has this amazing capability built in by mother nature to treat, to treat itself, to heal itself. And then I, I, I fell in love with the idea of longevity. I fell in love that we're living in a unique time. And this is actually the, this is where it started. We're living in a unique intersection of this science and, and technology where finally for the, for the first time in the history of humanity and evolution, we can actually fundamentally treat diseases on, on the genetic level. We can actually reverse aging process. It is happening today. There's so many studies when people became like three years younger in the course of eight weeks, whether it's, you know, doing more oxygen in the hyperbaric chambers or changing their lifestyle on this three dimension in the course of eight weeks, minus 3.2 years for the group of 80 men and women down in the U.S. I mean, it's just like mind blowing. And this is- It's amazing, yeah. We're regeneration. Gene editing and gene therapy, use of artificial intelligence for early cancer diagnostic. And I thought, okay, I want to support this space and I want to set up a relatively small fund, okay? $50 million and I'll just write tickets to entrepreneurs and scientists and they will, you know, they will do something great for healthcare system to bring affordable and accessible version of healthcare to everyone. I'm not interested to develop something which will cost millions of dollars, will be available for top 1% of population. So I raised 50 million in the first five minutes. And I'm like, I, I now mean super over okay? Whatever comes easy, I would never appreciate. So I'm like, okay, I need to raise more. It should be $100 million fund. So I was in the road for a year. Obviously hearing a lot of no, some yes. And I've set up $100 million fund four years ago. We invested in 21 companies, mostly in the U.S., and it's been amazing. Like what I've discovered for myself and for the world, you know, I can tell you some of some of the stories, some of the companies, some of the studies and upcoming treatments are literally amazing. 
So the the next question I want to ask you is about aging. So I'm I'm 54 years old, and for the first 50 years of my life, aging was something that was inevitable. And then I started to read about David Sinclair and books like yours and other people like that. And there's this idea that aging is a curable disease. So how do you define aging or what is aging to you? Human biology and, and aging is extremely complex. But what is important to understand that there are a number of processes inside your body which contributes to aging. So first of all, it's actually start in the age of 40, 45, some of the people around 50. And the idea, the overall idea that we just completed the, our evolutionary mission in this world. So you, you, I mean, you've done with your kids and then you took care of them. And then now by the time when they can have their own kids, you basically done on this world. So, so on one side, it feels inevitable for humans as biological species. On the other side, we have a number of, you know, animals or species on earth who are not aging. They die by some other reasons but not necessarily aging. So it gives you an idea and a hope that, you know, one day we can solve this equation. So it's partly defined by your genetic setup. So it's 30 to 40% predefined by your genes. Then there's another translation mechanism inside your body, which call epigenetics. And this is basically how your genetic information translates in the processes inside your body. One of the most important targets for us is, is that we, through the years, we accumulate molecular damage on, on the cellular level. And with the time, we have less and less, uh, you know, ability to take out this cellular garbage from our cells. And that's, that's actually, you know, slow down the processes inside our bodies as well. But why aging is important? Your probability to get one of the four what I call killer monster diseases after age of 50 increase exponentially 10, 20, 40 times. And with 90% probability after age of 50, you know, all of us will die because of these four diseases. One is heart disease, second cancer, fourth is diabetes. That's why obesity is a risk and fighting diabetes is, is super important. And then fourth is neurogenerative diseases. This is pretty recent and new source of kind of mortality risk because in the history of humanity, like hundred years ago, the average lifespan on earth was 35 years, but the average lifespan on earth now is in developed world, probably around 70, 75 years already. So we never face the critical mass neurogenerative diseases like dementia, right? Alzheimer's disease. So right now we're trying, we, we're just trying to understand like where it comes from, where it starts. Some people say it's 40, 45 years when the aging starts, the aging of the brain starts as well. But we were fighting, we successfully fighting the way uh, heart disease and cancer is, which usually comes around 50, 60 years. Well, we're 50, 60, 70 years old, or as I prefer to say, 50, 60 years young. And uh, neurogenerative disease is another wave, another barrier coming around 70 years when we turning 70, 80 years. So we don't know where it actually comes from right now because we never face it in a scale at that would support, you know, R&D and scientists focusing on that, but we get in there as well. So that's why if you, if you are not focusing on treating one disease or one symptom, which is important, which is the way that the healthcare and medicine is developing today. But if you're focusing on like slowing down or reversing aging processes inside your body, 
well, you can influence a lot of diseases. Like in few decades from now, you will actually be able to define your target biological age and by the means of different interventions, slow it down to, you know, I think majority of people would use anywhere between 25 and 45. This is your most probably productive, but still experienced and mature and wise time on earth. That's my forecast. Let's talk about far horizon and near horizon of longevity. Let's start with near horizon of longevity. What does that mean and what does it look like for humans? When you think about aging or fighting aging, well, let's think about three time moments or horizons. So there's something which is available now. So like, and again, this is very useful and very simple. Like every time you hear something, you can put it in one of these three buckets. So one, and it's certain part of the book is like what you can do now. So it's pretty boring lifestyle changes. Plus a couple of new things. One is the power of early diagnostic and the power of sensors. I mean, our audience cannot see me, but you know, we're in like continuous glucose monitor or a ring to monitor my sleep, you know, Apple Watch or whatever gadget you use to measure your heart rate and heart rate variability, my 10,000 steps a day. And so gadgets, sensors, new diagnostic devices will support your longevity today. And it is very important. So I tell people the following, the most important day of your life every year is not your birthday. It's a day of your medical screening. 24 years ago, cancer was case of death. Now, if you discover cancer by, you know, full body MRI or whatever the yeah, medical checkup routine you will experience in the hospital next door, if you will discover cancer at early stage, your probability of recovery for some of the cancer type go up to 93 to 100%. And the quality of your life is going to be the same, untouched. So that's, that's amazing. And that's why we just need to be much more proactive and preventive. We spend on our cars more money and time than taking care of our bodies. This is crazy. So that's, that's now. Okay. And, and funny enough, like in the end of the book, this chapter called 10 longevity choices, it's twice as long as any other chapter in the book. So there are so many things that you can do today. Then the major part of the book is about something what I call the near horizon of longevity innovation. So this is something which is currently in the cooking, but it's not like in some crazy minds. It's actually tested in the labs and pre-approved by FDA for testing on humans. So it's not like completely crazy. And these are the interventions and inventions which will be available in the next 5, 10, 15 years. So this is what I call the near horizon of longevity innovation. And when people ask me like, Sergey, what are the most promising like three things which would change our ability to manage aging, our health, you know, at 5, 10, 15, healthy and happy years to our life, right in the middle, not in the end. Yeah, I always tell you, gene editing, gene therapy. Second is organ regeneration, our ability to replace and supplement organs, similar to what we do with like old cars to extend their, their lifespan. And third is longevity in the pill. Like in 10 years time, we're going to see the new class of medicine, new class of drugs, which is longevity, you know, fighting aging in longevity in the pill, which would address aging in its core and decrease the probability and risk of your getting any of these four, you know, all, you know, age-related diseases and will make you younger. Because right now, if you go to, you know, CVS, Walgreens, and you ask them, do you have anything against aging? 
they will think you're crazy or they will send you to cosmetics or they will send you (laughs) the creams. Yeah. Yeah. Cover up creams. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's true. But like, think about this. This is counterintuitive, right? We, we right now, we have all the technology, we have all the science, we have an understanding like what is happening inside our body. And it's not like you just occasionally getting cancer. It's all science-based. So in 10 years time, we're going to see a number of drugs, which are going to be prescription-based, but which will, in a positive way, make an effect, like an anti-aging effect on your your overall body. And it's very likely it's going to be developed with the use of artificial intelligence. Like we invested in two companies, they've been able to compress first two years of drug development process into two months, just by combining human intelligence and artificial intelligence. And this is huge because That's in huge. the US, to develop huge, drugs, yeah. you would need 12 years and you would need $2.6 billion. So that's bloody expensive. It's one out of 5,000 drug candidates make it to the pharmacy in decade plus. So it's a huge probability game. It's very expensive. So AI will help us. And right now we have a number of candidates which will be repurposed from like, you know, old diabetes drug to anti-aging drug. Like the logistics metformin, again, is prescription drugs. You need to see a doctor. You need to discuss it. Like metformin is a 60 years old drug with relatively safe profile. And right now, they, I'm on the board of American Federation of Aging Research and with Neil Barzilai, professor from New York and the many other good friends. We're just trying to push the huge trial here in the U.S. where 3,000 people are going to be testing it for me in the context of, of looking at their biological age and all biomarkers, not, not only in the context of managing their diabetes. And I, if I can give you the funny story, you know that, that with every trial, you would need to have like, like a medicine itself, like a drug itself, but also you'll need to have a placebo. Empty pill, and people don't know whether they take an empty pill or like proper drug. And then you compare whether it's actually producing results, you know, outside the typical placebo effect. So for this 3,000 person trial, which hopefully going to start next year, placebo is more expensive than metformin. Okay. So this is how you know we can do it. But again, I'm I'm not a big fan of like okay in three years time we're gonna change the world we're all gonna be taking this this is a huge medical and regulatory work that we need to do. But like in five ten years time from now, longevity in the bill would be possible. It can be old drug like informin, rapamycin, or it can be new drug developed with AI. So that's what I call the near horizon of longevity innovations, and this will add you know, at least 10, 20 healthy and happy years to our life. What, what do you expect life expectancy to be by 2100? On one side, I'm like super optimistic. On the other side, they say like to move statistical average for 8 billion people, it's a huge work through the centuries. But nevertheless, you and I, you know, I think we can literally add like in the next few decades, well, a couple of decades, We'll add another 10, 20, probably 25, healthy and happy years to our life. But that's actually one of the most important takeaways from the book. And that's why it's became, you know, Wall Street Journal bestseller, USA Today bestseller. It was number one on Amazon for, in few categories, for so many. Like the main message from me is not about science, it's not about technology. We all need to understand, we all going to be living longer or much longer than we expect. So that's why... There's a separate chapter called morality of immortality about our choices that we may need to make on the 
on the level of ethics and, and society for us to be able to embrace the idea of longer living. The whole life paradigm should change. Think about the world today. The world today is black and white. I mean, you know, I mean, if you look around, it's not black and white, this, you know, 50 grips of shit, but it's not about this. It's the, the concept of career is binary. You either work full time or you retired full time. The concept of marriage, I'm a happily married man. So I'm not complaining about this. It's just, are you either married or you divorce? And then like, what is happening with the kids? Right. And then if you have like kids time and then if you have retirement time. Right. And then, and there's so many things that, that, I mean, you have, you know, lifetime, like a profession and you have lifetime career. Okay. So world will not be binary. You will have series of mini lives, series of relationship with all responsibility. You'll have generations of the key. Okay. Not only one generation, but generations, like from multiple layers of it. Yeah. It's not like you, you're going to be on retirement. You're always going to be constructively busy with so many things, whether it's, you know, for money or for mission or for love, et cetera. So that's, I think is pretty forward. So that's what, what's going to happen even in, in our lifetime, right? When we just turn out 50 uh, or for any part of our audience. I have been telling people for several years as I've started this project. And I'm not just focused on longevity and, and healthcare. I'm focused on all sorts of technology and social trends and work and leadership. But I have been telling people that if I can make it to 70, it's almost guaranteed I can make it to 120. So I need to make it these next 16 years and allow, I think you say longevity velocity or <laughs> escaping longevity velocity or something like that. I feel like these next 16 years are so critical. And then the, then I have 50 more years after that, almost guaranteed. Do you agree with that? Yes. So it's a concept developed by uh, one of our role models, Ray Kurzweil. He actually wrote the, together with Peter Diamantis, wrote a foreword for the book. So the whole concept is like, we're going to see so many changes, so transformational changes available to all of us in 10 years from now or 15 years from now. But Guys, we need to survive this 10, 15 years. And the quality of your life, the quality of your body and, and mind should be worth extending it in 10, 15 years from now. So this is called, you know, staying on longevity bridge. Yeah, you need to stay on longevity bridge so then you can enjoy the benefits of what we discussed today in the near horizon, be, you know, massive gene therapy, which can influence our longevity genes and, and give us all of us, the opportunity to build being lucky in genetic lottery. Sergey, when I read the book, there was something in the book you wrote, 56% of Americans said they would not want to live to 120 if given the chance. And that's why I was thinking, and, and then you wrote about myths. That's why I was thinking, wow, we really have poor imaginations. We're thinking about what 120 would be like in 2023. Not what 120 might be like in 2053 or 2063. Yeah, we have an old model of how the old person should look like and live like. Yeah, but it, this going to change realistically. So that's, I think, is extremely important to, to realize. But moreover, coming back to this ethical and societal concerns that we have created technologies to extend our lives, but we haven't created lives that we want to extend. With all this inequality, you know, the crazy thing happening in the, in the world or in the families or in societies, 
communities. There are so many things that we need to solve to, again, to support and embrace the idea of longer living. I love books where I read something provocative and then I have a question and I'm like, yeah, well, what about this, buddy? And then the very next chapter, the author addresses that. And that was your book. I, I was thinking about the morality and, and in 2042, is everybody going to be able to afford the scenario you lay out and you address that? So let me ask you that question. You know, these drugs and these new advances and, and innovations, will this be just for the rich and elite or will it be more democratized? So we have 21 companies in our investment portfolio. In vast majority of cases, what we bring into the world is much more efficient by 20 to 50 times. Early cancer diagnostic, $200 kit, which can test 50 different types of cancer based on your blood. And this is not science fiction. It is starting to be available all around the US as we speak, right? It's a company called Prino. It's going to be available very soon. Or the other company, Ecoimaging, which develop affordable ultrasound diagnostic devices. So this big ultrasound machine in the hospital is $100,000, $200,000. But the best example for all of us who understand is like cost of smartphone, like cellular phone. 25 years ago, it was, you know, it was heavy luggage, right? Cost $10,000 plus. And right now, you spend 14 minutes on the way from Hong Kong to Shenzhen, the largest electronic market in the world, and you can buy a new smartphone for $9, okay? I know it's more expensive in our countries, but still, like, the level of democratization of this is amazing. So this is going to happen everything, which is, like, I mean, if you want to be crazy about it, I actually think high-tech healthcare, super-efficient healthcare should be part of universal, universal basic income and universal basic services package, and it should be for free. So in chapter five of the book, you describe a morning routine of somebody living 20 years from now. Can you share what that might be like? You, you kind of talked about some different scenarios just a, a few minutes ago, but I found the, the morning routine really compelling, and I thought I'd ask you about that. Look, what are we going to see in the future? Well, your environment is going to be much more longevity-friendly. The humidity, the quality of the air inside your room where you're going to be sleeping, your ability to optimize the oxygen, like the level of oxygen in the air around, you know, all of this is going to be much more tech-driven and it will contribute to your longevity. You're going to be full of sensors and diagnostic devices, right? I'm, you know, I'm already like full of sensors, but they're going to be, you know, not necessarily invasive. They're going to be almost invisible. Our bloods we'll have nanobots and then small nanorobots which will flow inside our bloods and will fix cancer or do diagnostic as well. And again, you think I'm crazy? I know at least five companies in the US, in Boston or Silicon Valley, who are working on the prototypes of these nanobots, okay? And, and, and this, this is, is within 20 years. 20, within 20 years, this, this will be available to people. Yeah, exactly. Well, think about definition of food, it's going to be much more functional. You'll obviously will have food, which is for enjoyment or social gathering to spend time with friends and enjoy that. But otherwise, I mean, food is, food industry is unnecessarily complicated and industrialized at this time. I sound crazy for some of our audience, but think about this. So I have a dog 
with the arrival of the pet food and dog food, where they put different micro elements, different nutritional mix, the average life for the dogs in, in our homes improved from 10 to 17 years in a few decades. If we will take the same approach to the way we kind of do construct food on a functional way for humans, we can achieve the same result. Next thing, genetic diseases. So we think we, we call it rare diseases for the purpose of regulation. But if you think about rare disease, if you combine only people on earth who are suffering from rare diseases, you'll get to the figure of 300 million people. So we will be able to cure genetic diseases and its core. And it's obviously, you know, frankly speaking, and it's about far horizon of longevity innovation, 25 feet years from now, assuming that we're going to solve societal, ethical, regulatory problems, our brain going to be integrated with artificial intelligence. So it's not like AI will win or human intelligence will win. We will be integrated in certain ways. We already integrated, like frankly speaking, you already outsourced a lot to computing power in a form of smartphone. You just use very inefficient interfaces. It's terrible. It's it's awful. Yeah, yeah. You see, you you years to listen to the audio message. You know, your fingers to type something. Well, in the end of the day, it's all going to be integrated in a certain way. I don't know whether it's going to be invasive, like in Elon Musk Neuralink case, or non-invasive when you just have like certain electronic apps to scan your brainwaves. But so this is going to happen. And finally. To come to, you know, finish this picture. Well, people ask me like, hey, do you want to be immortal or not? The, the reality, like from what I know of being for five years in this space and for 51 years in this life in different industries, it's not like in, in few decades, you will need to decide whether you become an immortal or not. Every five to 10 years, you will need to make a decision. Are you extending your life for another five and 10? healthy and happy years or not. And that's actually a huge ethical paradigm because in today's religion or in today's society, if you decide not to extend your life, it's almost like a suicide. Okay, so a lot of you know, difficult, interesting choices in the future, but we need to work on that. We need to make our planet and our society and our countries much better place. Humans have been really great at extending quantity of life. Right. You know, you said life expectancy in 1900 was 35. So we've done a great job, but we haven't done a great job of improving quality of life. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. As, as I say, yeah, we, we've managed to develop technologies and science to extend our lives, but we haven't created life that we want to extend. So that's, that's fair. And it's, and while, you know, I can invest a lot of time and effort and sleepless night to support the entrepreneurs and scientists who will fight cancer. The fight for happiness is your own fight, okay? We will need to find our own solution. It's goals from inside, the, the purpose of life, being a kind person, sharing more than you take from the universe and you take from people around. This is where it's all starts. Our audience is largely business leaders, so they're probably thinking about, you know, if we're radically extending life, how does this change work? The implication of longevity is huge, and, and it's not only for, you know, insurance industry when they may, you know, make money on that. So I think this fall from non-binary work models to like the way you think about your, the population of the planet, your customers, your workforce, like 
what particular side of the longevity revolution you can use at your own advantage. That's, that's a huge open question for strategic discussion for your C-level, C-level executives strategic offsite. And frankly speaking, we all have our different views on that. I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. They're actually very complementary. So my, you know, I'm, I'm CEO for so many years, even decades. Yeah, I think it's just the best way is to like, you know, sit down with people in the executive room and say, guys, I just read in this crazy book. It sounds crazy, but the reality is that we're all going to be living much, much longer. So what do we do with that? Yeah. Open the question, open the dialogue. You'll hear a lot of very unusual and transformational things. Sergey, what does it mean to be human? I think the definition of success as we have in our society today, I think it took us in a different direction and probably a little bit in the wrong direction. I think human is about social connection, not about you know, digital dependency on the gadget. So I think it's social connection. I think it's about empowering others, enjoying when you can save someone's life or support someone's life, someone's life. In short, and I'll just gonna repeat what I said a few minutes ago, is giving more than you take. Do this like every day, no matter, you know, big or small, and you see how your life will change. Sergey, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Thank you for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to the Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. We will be back next week with Fleet Master Chief David Isom, who is Command Senior Enlisted Leader of the United States Indo-Pacific Command. We will discuss the grit and determination that helped him become a Navy SEAL and how he and other leaders are building resilience within an organization of more than 300,000 people dispersed across a culturally, socially, economically, and geographically diverse region. Thanks to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.